Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you, my friend, are in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are in the top 0.5% of podcasts on planet Earth. And that's because listeners like you have made us the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, every thinking person and caring person has been affected by the pain and suffering in our world of late. And most of us have been grappling with the horrors of October 7th and everything that has come since then. As much of the Western world heads into the holiday season, today we are joined by legendary Rabbi Sharon Browse to help us make sense of it all. This is a very powerful conversation with one of the most influential rabbis in America. You see, Rabbi Sharon is the founding rabbi of Ikar, a Jewish synagogue and community in L.A. Uh, rabbi Sharon was also chosen to bless President Obama and Vice President Biden at their inaugural in 2013, and she returned to do the same for President Biden and Vice President Harris in 2021. Rabbi Sharon was also named the number one most influential rabbi in the United States by Newsweek and the Daily Beast. Her new book is available now for pre-order, and it also makes a wonderful gift for yourself and for others. It's called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And I think you love it. So pick up a copy today, wherever you get legendary books. It's called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and Broken World. And man, do we have a broken heart and a broken world. And I think you're going to love everything about this conversation with this extraordinary rabbi. Now, are you ready to learn the greatest superpower in business? Category Design? Category Pirate's new Category Design Academy is open and there, people are learning to create different futures, design and dominate new market categories, and take their career to a whole new level by learning category design. The Category Design Academy is the first business academy for and by pirates. So go to CategoryPirates.com today and learn how you can create different futures. And now, as the religious philosopher Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Rabbi Sharon, it sure is great to see you. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Now, I have a weird question, but it's the one that's on my mind. So let me ask it. How are you? It's the hardest question to answer. I'm shattered. My heart is broken. I'm really worried about, I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my community. I'm worried about the world. And I don't know. I not to start on a on a downbeat, but I do feel like we're at this very precarious critical moment in history where we have to make a choice about, you know, who we are and how we want to live and that choice could lead to endless suffering or we might collectively decide that we want to, you know, start to move toward healing. But it's going to have to be a very deliberate choice because I, I'm I'm afraid of that the that the moment is driving us toward so much sorrow right now, and um, 
I'm a little, I'm a little heartbroken. I will also say though, <laughs> as a pastor, it's literally my job to help give people hope. So I hope people don't turn off the podcast already in the first two minutes from that. Um, and thank, thankfully, thank God, you know, every time Shabbat comes, I often start the week on a note of despair, but then I build toward hope. And always by the time Shabbat comes, by the time the Sabbath comes, I find, um, you know, some little clearing of light through the mess of our time. So we'll get there, I'm sure, in our time together today. I have no doubt. Now, I've spoken with a lot of uh, religious leaders since the horror of um, October 7th. And I'm curious, and I've consumed a lot of uh, you on the internet, um, things that you've said since October 7th. And so I'm curious how, as a rabbi, how you help us deal with, process, uh, deal with our anger, our upset, our fear for the future, all of the things that many of us have felt, and of course, acutely in the Jewish community, obviously. How, how do you help all of us uh, from, from the vantage point of a rabbi? I think that my first job is to be a pastor, to really pastor to my community, to, as we say, you know, to comfort the afflicted, to name out loud the pain that people are experiencing, to affirm how how incredibly um, worrisome and anguished this time really is, and not to stop there, to to then lead us to stretch our hearts, to try to find some empathy from our own suffering, to try to reestablish links to a world that we dream is possible, even from out of the depth of the world that we find ourselves in, um, to remember that we have responsibilities to one another and to the broader community, and to reaffirm those, um, even, even in a time of so much heartache, is actually I've found gives us back our agency when we're hurting because we feel um, we feel so powerless in in moments like this. But actually, we're not powerless. We do have the power to continue to to continue to open our hearts and insist on a better way. And I think in a time of of false binaries, which is really what I see happening right now, I think I, I'm always searching for a third way. I'm searching for a way to honor and affirm and lift up human goodness. I'm searching for ways to, to root our compassion for others in a deep self-love, which is, which is very rare and hard to find in this moment. Um, you know, I, I don't trust people who in this time can experience solidarity with some people, but not with other people. I just, I feel like our call as human beings is to, is to stretch our hearts, to be capacious enough to hold, um, to hold many people who are in pain at once, both from our own family and from the global family. And so, I, I mean, that is hard work to do. And that's something we need to be reminded to do and actually actively work toward because it's not instinctive, especially when we're broken. 
um, and full of sorrow and rage and fear and all of the things that come in moments like this. But I know it to be possible. So there's both the pastoral aspect of the work and then, you know, what some call the more prophetic aspect of the work, which is actually pushing our communities beyond what they're comfortable with and where they would instinctively go, which is to nurture our own broken hearts and to start to think differently about what kind of future we want to live in and what power we do have to try to achieve that kind of vision. It's about, that's about lifting the gaze from our own, from our own broken hearts and, and starting to see what exists outside of our immediate circle of, of, of sorrow. And that work is very hard and very critical. Yes. And if I were to come to you and say, Rabbi, uh, I, I, I've been incredibly upset since October 7th. Um, everything that's happened since then, the rise in anti-Semitic uh, behavior is, at least to me, shocking and disgusting. Um, the support for Hamas is shocking and disgusting. And so if I were to come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm freaked out. I'm having a panic attack. I'm having an anxiety attack. I, I feel out of control. I feel like um, people that, that I thought were with us are not anymore. I feel lonely. I feel abandoned. These are many of the things that I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just from my Jewish friends. And so I'm sure you've heard things along this line from people, yes? Yeah, I have. I mean, I think that was one of the surprises among many um, in this post-October 7th reality was the loneliness, the sense of, as I've called it in some some sermons, an existential loneliness, which is not new to this moment in history, but is surprising nevertheless. And you know, we've been doing a lot of work on loneliness in our community and in the country, um, really guided by the very brilliant work of Dr. Vivek Murthy, who the Surgeon General, who's been who actually came to our community to Ikar on Yom Kippur this year, so that we could engage in a conversation about loneliness community and why we need one another. And we really have come to understand the toll of loneliness on the body, uh, on us as individuals, our physical health, not just our spiritual and mental health, but our physical health. And the revelation for me post-October 7th is that if that's the impact of loneliness on the individual, can you imagine the expanded impact of loneliness on, on, on a collective, on an entire community that feels in many ways like what happened? I thought I thought we were in this together. I thought you were my friends and my colleagues. And now I wonder if some, God forbid something happened to me, if you would just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, that's the price one pays to, um, to, to fight colonialism or, or whatever the, you know, the excuse would be. I mean, that, that does drive a kind of existential loneliness. And so, the question is, what do we do with our loneliness? And what the science teaches us about loneliness is that loneliness, like physical pain, is a signal to the brain that we need something that we're not getting. So the hand on the stove, you know, you pull your hand back and you wouldn't know to pull your hand back if your body didn't feel that pain. And so 
so when we experience that that very profound feeling of loneliness, whether it's as individuals or, or you know or as a collective, it's a reminder to the system I need something that I'm not getting right now, and um, and that's why Dr. Murthy describes loneliness as the gap between the social connections that we need and those that we have, which is going to be different for everybody because some people, frankly, have you know gr- need a lot more than others do. So if we're experiencing loneliness collectively, what it's doing is it's a it's a signal to the brain and to the heart that I need more than what I'm getting right now. And so where can I find that? How can I find myself in the midst of community when I feel so vulnerable and so alone right now? And the the kind of natural inclination when one experiences loneliness is to retreat from the world. But actually, what we have to do is reinvest in the world. We have to move in a different, in the opposite trajectory. So when we're feeling struck by um, or blindsided by loneliness, we actually have to pick up the phone, reach out to people, make phone calls. If you didn't hear from friends who you were hoping to hear from in light of a tragedy that struck your family, we actually have to reach out to those friends and, and maybe to others because our hearts are oriented biologically, spiritually, um, chemically. We are oriented toward one another. Human beings need each other for thriving. And so when we feel like we're becoming an island, what we have to do is, first of all, see who else is on this island with me, because that itself can be a temporary community, and then realize you can't self-sustain on an island forever. And so at some point, you have to start building bridges back to the mainland. And that is really critical work that takes a very long time. And when you're in the acute moments of suffering, like in the first few weeks after a tragedy occurs, you don't have the bandwidth to start building bridges necessarily. But hopefully we have the muscle memory to do that so that when we do feel that we have the strength to do so, we can start to invest again in 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 reestablishing uh, those those absolutely critical relationships, because you know no man is an island, no people is an island. It's not. It's there's no there's no ethnic group. There's no there there is no cluster of humans that can actually survive without other humans. We are really interconnected, and I think this time has shown us that. Um, in very profound ways. And so that's what I'm talking about, lifting our gaze and again, identifying, you know, who, who out there in the world is, am I able to be in relationship with and invest in relationship with who can affirm my humanity and whose humanity I can affirm. And I'll tell you in the, in the earliest days after October 7th, as a rabbi and as a Jew, I felt incredible sense of betrayal from the people who I didn't hear from people who I've been in the work with for decades, who didn't call to say, is your family okay? And, you know, and I I felt stung by it. It was very painful, but I started to realize that actually I had to pick up the phone and call some, as much as I felt pain, I had to pick up the phone and call other people who I imagined were also in pain. And so some of those people who I reached out to are Palestinian friends here in Los Angeles, who we've been in the, you know, the work of really building a truly beautiful multi-faith, multi-racial community here in Los Angeles for many, many years. And when I reached out to some of those friends, I realized that, you know, maybe not surprisingly, the same feelings of, of 
anguish, of heartache, of isolation, of loneliness that I was experiencing as a Jew. They were also experiencing as Palestinians. And the realization of that kind of shared humanity is actually part of the healing. That 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 made me feel less lonely. That's really hard work to do, but I believe that that's essential. Thank you for that. It It feels like we're very far from that, Rabbi. And so how do you deal with, in your own mind, Israel's stated intent now to rid the world of Hamas and everything you just said? How do, the, how do those things sit together in your mind? I believe, along with the many thousands of Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel who are part of a very vibrant civil society in Israel, that the only way forward will be together. I believe that ultimately there will not be a military solution to this conflict, that ultimately we are going to have to find a way to build a future as neighbors. And that will be rooted in an understanding of shared grief, of shared suffering, of shared love for our children and for their future. And it's so hard to even think this way when we're all hurting so much right now. And you and I are talking as two people living in America. I mean, all the more so um, for people who are living in, in Israel and in Gaza and in the West Bank to even imagine living together. And yet I take incredible inspiration from the leaders of civil society there who've been doing this work for decades. I'm talking about the Bereaved Families Forum. These are you know, Jews and Palestinians, Israeli Jews and Palestinians who have been grieving together for decades, who realize many years ago that they have to build a future together. I'm talking about the combatants for peace, these extraordinary um, former combatants who found their way to one another, who share a vision of what the future could look like. I'm talking about standing together. Um, this is an organization of, I mean, there are tens of thousands of people who show up on street corners together, Palestinians and, and Israeli Jews together, and they fully believe that the great hope is that we can learn how to be neighbors. Um, and ultimately, I think to get us from here to there will require a lot of humanity and a lot of curiosity. And if I if it's okay, I want to say a word about curiosity because I feel in our Rabbi, time, you can say anything you want. I want to hear anything <laughs> you have to say. I really do. Well, I'll tell you. Let me offer for you a paradigm. This is actually um, this this is the central paradigm of a of a book that I wrote that's coming out in just a couple of weeks called the Amen Effect or the Amen Effect, depending on which tradition you come from. The Amen Effect: Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and and World. And if the, I could just cent- stop you, the subtitle of your book, yeah, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. Now, when this book was written. October 7th had obviously not happened. You look very prescient today, Rabbi. Well, the world was still broken before October 7th, but maybe even more so now. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I closed this manuscript over a year ago 
And it's essentially a reflection of 20 years in the rabbinate. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of the framework in a moment, but I, I closed the manuscript and then went into the studio to, to read the audiobook just last month. And I read these words again and thought, these words make more sense now than they did when I wrote them for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is because the book really starts with grief. It starts with kind of an exploration of personal grief and the reverberations of individual loss on a broader family and community and ultimately society. And when I wrote the book, I had not, um, I, I had not, I had many times pastored to people who had lost loved ones, um, but I had not lost anyone in my immediate family. My father died um, just this past August after the book closed. Um, actually, I got a I got a copy of the galleys right before he died, and I got to put it in his hand. He was very happy about it, but he never saw the book um, in full. And so, for the first time, I, you know, I, I I encountered the book again now as a mourner because I'm in my year of mourning now. And I really wrote the book as someone supporting mourners. And now I read the book as a mourner. I also wrote the book as a Jew in America who, despite the spike in anti-Semitism since really since 2017, since um, Charlottesville, um, really felt some relative security and comfort that this country was a safe place to be raising my children and post-October 7th, um, a lot of that is called into question now. And so I wrote the book from a position of, in some way, um, that I'm, I'm on the side of the, you know, the, the comforter and the supporter. And now I read the book as somebody who's experiencing it from the other side. And I'll explain what I mean by the other side. So central to this book um, is, is an ancient ritual that appears in the Mishnah, ancient Jewish compendium of law, from a pretty obscure uh, piece of work in there called Midot. It's actually describing the architecture of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in ancient times. And the, the text is a very terse, kind of three-line text that essentially describes the ancient pilgrimage ritual when Jews would come from all over the land and they would ascend to Jerusalem, they would immerse in the ritual bath, they would climb up the steps of the Temple Mount and then enter through this arched entryway under these giant porticos. And they would turn to the right in the, in the Temple Mount courtyard and they would circle around the perimeter of the courtyard from the right. So if you imagine hundreds of thousands of people all walking in one direction, um, counterclockwise, and then, um, and then the text says, except for somebody with a broken heart, that person would still have to go up to Jerusalem. They would still ascend the steps, steps. They would still walk through the same entryway, but they would turn to the left and everybody else would circle around from the right. They're going to leave the same place they came in, but they would now pass the person who's walking from the left. And every person who they saw were walking from the left, they would have to stop and say two simple words, Malach, what happened to you? What's your story? Tell me about your heartache. And the person who's walking from the left would say, my father just died, you know, three years of Parkinson's. It was rough. And I'm so grateful that we had this time with him. 
and so sad that he's gone or my husband just left or I'm worried about my child or I just got a diagnosis, whatever the thing is that that has made that person walk from left to right. And so the whole premise of the book is essentially the ancient rabbis built this ritual engagement that is actually rooted in an incredibly profound psychological insight, which is that when we are bereaved and broken, the last thing in the world that we might want to do is ascend the steps and turn to the left and, you know, and be in the presence of lots of people. But we're called into community precisely when we want to retreat, as I was saying earlier, and that the community that's doing fine, and they're in this kind of peak spiritual moment of their lives, you know, people would save up for their entire lives to be able to go on this pilgrimage. And the last thing you want to do is stop and take note of this poor broken person who's coming toward you. And yet that is your core religious obligation. There's nothing else you even need to do at the Temple Mount that day. All you have to do is see the broken person Ask them the question, what happened to you? And then when they tell you, offer them a blessing. May God give you comfort and then move on. And so how do we learn how to see one another, how to show up for one another in moments of celebration and in moments of sorrow when we desperately need each other? And how do we do it with grace and with love, even when our own hearts might be broken? That's the framework that I've been holding really for the last 20 years in my rabbinate, this one kind of obscure ancient text that is at the very heart of how we build community and how we hold each other in grief, what it means to show up um, in moments that really destabilize us when other people are hurting. And we we don't want to go anywhere near that pain because it makes us wonder, could the same thing happen to us? But we're called again and again and again into community and what it means to show up when we're hurting and we're terrified of being around other people, but we need other people in order to survive. We need to be held. And then, and then ultimately, so this is very personal. This is like the the most immediate work of the human heart and of building core communities that can actually hold hold us in times of great pain and also times of joy. And then we expand the lens and start to look at us as a society. And what does it mean when the whole world seems like it's moving in one direction, but but you or I or we feel like we're moving in the other? And how do we hold curiosity about one another in those moments so that we can actually remember that at our core, we are all human? And we all hurt and we all love and we all yearn. And so once we see one another's humanity again, the healing is able to begin. So Rabbi, I love all that. And there's something that I think has been exposed, at least to me. Uh, It started when my dear friend Tushar was murdered and has sort of been clearer and clearer to me over time and subsequent October 2nd, it's become radically clear. And that is the following. Somebody could hear what you just said. That's what I want my rabbi to tell me. And I think that's what many people in the Western world believe. And I think here's the thing that we don't understand most of us in the Western world. There is pure evil. 
There is pure, murderous, horrible evil. These are not people who just had bad childhoods. These are not people from dis- disadvantaged backgrounds who, if only they were given an up. No, this is not that. There is absolute, complete, total, pure evil in the world. And there's nothing that can be done about that evil other than neutralize it. And so, how do we take everything you just said and know? Well, Hamas has said its stated intention is the destruction of all Jews. They say we're going to kill everybody who worships on Saturday, and then we're going to kill everybody who worships on Sunday. So how do I take what you just said and also understand there is pure evil, evil that would kill me, evil that would like to break into my house tonight and do horrible things to my family. How do I hold both of those things? I'll tell you, one of my teachers, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, wrote in the 80s that the Holocaust is the dominant psychic reality for the Jew, any Jew. Whether your family was survived the Holocaust, whether your family comes from North Africa or from I- Iran, that the Holocaust embedded itself into the psyche so that we always hold an awareness of a kind of existential vulnerability. And I found that to be true. I think about that all the time. And I also think that there is a danger in engaging the world as though every person we encounter is a potential Nazi. Now, some people are actually evil and some people do want to break into our homes and murder us. And we have to be vigilant to that. We have to be honest about those threats. We have to protect ourselves from those threats. But for me, I see a great danger in looking at the world through that lens, because the fact is most people in this world of the billions of people who exist and we share this planet with are not evil. And most people actually just want to be able to put their kids to bed at night with full bellies. You know, most people in the world don't want to do harm to others. And so I believe that we have to be clear-eyed about the threats when they exist and they do exist. And I feel it profoundly now as a you know, public Jew in America, I feel it. As someone with family in Israel, I feel it. I feel it for them. And I, I also know that we have to continue to fight for the recognition of, of shared humanity all the time, even in moments when we are incredibly and profoundly vulnerable. Because at the end of the day, most people just want to live, not to take others' lives. And just the reminder of that is really critical for us. Because otherwise we become we become less human. And that I worry about very deeply. I think that that chips away at our own our own humanity when we start to look at the world and see enemies everywhere. So I was speaking with a colleague the other day, a dear beloved friend and colleague who's a European Jew. 
And she said that her father's side of the family was saved by righteous Gentiles, was hidden during the war and saved. Her mother's side of the family was murdered by their neighbors. And one survived, um, the grandmother survived and was able to, you know, carry on the line. And so she has in her own family this split psyche where one side of the family says the world is good. Most people are good. And the other side of the family says, don't trust the world. At the end of the day, they will happily point their fingers and say, Jew, 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 you know, these are the houses that you need to hit on this street. And she and I were talking about the pain that comes from each of these psychic identities. On one side, if you hold the, the if you hold the world view of her father's family, then what you're then what you're going to experience is shock and anguish when you realize that many of your own friends, allies, colleagues don't seem to be at all disturbed when when children and elders are raped and massacred on October 7th and you're just shocked by it. On the other side, if you live through the worldview of her mother, you're not at all shocked. Rabbi, don't you know that was the IDF that did that on October 7th? I mean, this is one of the astonishing, one of the astonishing realities of our time. And, oh, and, 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 and look, I just read, I just saw on TikTok, Osama bin Laden was a great guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. This is the time we're living in. Yeah. And also the dissemination of lies and the, the whole idea that this kind of conspiracy theory, the, the nature of, of public thought that emerged under the previous administration in which people became completely detached from reality has now migrated to the the camp that most strongly opposed that administration and is living in as much of a fantasy world uh, you know the, the that the that the far left lives in as much of a fantasy world as the far right now and that is not something for us to downplay i'm very aware of it and very vigilant and and extreme as i told you extremely anguished about it I believe the far left is more scary in the United States of America than the far right now. I mean, it started with burning our streets uh, post-George Floyd. Uh, we now have uh, Newsom is the most pro-criminal governor in the history of America. Crime is legalized largely in California, as you well know. And now we have this whole bizarre, twisted queers for Palestine. women. For Palestine, it's like, don't you understand what happens to gay people with with these jihadists running the show? And yet, here's the American left. They've, they've, they've bought so deeply into, there's one model, oppressor and oppressed, and you're either one or the other. And so Israel must be the oppressor. And we now have gay people in the United States marching for Hamas. I the game I don't want to play is the game of who's more dangerous, the right or the far right or the far left. But I the far everything is the dangerous. Far everything. Don't get I mean, me wrong, I think but. the real danger is when the far right and the far left meet, which is some of what we've been seeing um, recently, um, both in both in ideology and in approach. And that concerns me very much. Look, I think that mo- most of the protests after the murder of George Floyd were peaceful protests. That the reality is the overwhelming majority of those were peaceful protests. And it's very upsetting and disturbing, the, the moments that were not peaceful there. But the movement for Black lives in America has been a peaceful movement, by and large. 
that's not at all to take away from what you're saying about the danger of the far left today. I'm also extremely concerned about it. And I think that the I, there, there's a there's a story that now here another another little ancient story, if I if I may, which will connect this back to anti-Semitism specifically, because anti-Semitism tends to bring out that kind of linking of far left and far right historically. There's a story in the Book of Esther, which we tell at the holiday of Purim in spring every year, and Haman is the evil advisor to the king, and he's insulted by a Jew, Mordechai, and he does what anti-Semites do. They say, I don't like one Jew, so therefore I'm, I don't like all the Jews, and I'm going to kill all of the Jews. So Haman goes to the king, Rosh, and he says to the king, um, I would like to kill all of the Jews. And for the right to do that, I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. And the king, who did not appear to be an anti-Semite before this, says, you know what, keep, the, keep your money. You can kill them for free. And so our rabbis are trying to understand how it happened that this king who didn't seem to mind the Jews all of a sudden won't even take cash to for the right to kill them. And they tell the following story. They say, it's like two neighbors, one who live next door to each other. One of them has a huge ditch uh, in their backyard, a big hole. And it's a menace for the family. You know, they don't want to have a hole in the backyard. The next door neighbor has a huge mound of dirt. And all they want to do is get rid of their dirt. And finally, one guy with the dirt says to the guy with the ditch, you know, can I sell you, can I, can I get, can I pay you to take my dirt away? And the guy with the ditch says, I'll take it for free. I need to fill that hole anyway. And this is the way that our rabbis explain the way anti-Semitism works in it, throughout history, which is, it's not about right or left. The danger is when it kind of works for everybody to have a scapegoat. When, when, when lots of people feel relieved that now they can put they can put th their pain and their suffering and the problems of society on a really good target. And that target throughout history often has been the Jews. My concern in the last couple of months and, and a little bit in the last couple of years is that we're starting to see that once again, where it seems like there's one thing that the Nazis who are marching at University of Wisconsin-Madison and the uh, you know and and the students who are supporting Hamas calling it a, you know a legitimate military action and a powerful counter offensive at Columbia and at Harvard there's one thing that those two groups agree on and you know and that is that my family does not have a right to live and that's the danger that i see so i don't really i, I don't want to weigh or evaluate is this more dangerous than this it's all dangerous and it's most dangerous when these um threads start to find their way to one another yes that left and the right are meeting in there in, in the horrible middle okay so let me ask you my my naive question as a very little boy i had jewish friends i've had jewish friends my entire life I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded software company that was founded in Israel and that had almost 2,000 uh, Jewish slash Israeli friends. I spent a tremendous amount of time in Israel, in Tel Aviv, uh, had many a drunken evening at many a wonderful restaurant and bar <laughs> in Tel Aviv. And so just let me ask you a stupid, naive question. Where does this anti-Semitism come from? What, what, I don't, I don't. I know this makes me sound like a dope, but I just don't get it. Hmm. It doesn't make you sound like a dope. It's it's one of the it's one of the great questions. 
um, because anti-Semitism is a form of racism, but it doesn't function the way other forms of racism function, especially in America. And so we have this very American frame um, for understanding racism, and it's just different. Um, so anti-Semitism is a, fundamentally is a conspiracy theory um, that is rooted in some false narratives. And those are really myths about Jewish power. And they manifest in a number of different ways, but a myth of Jewish, uh, the myth of Jews running the media, the myth of Jews running the banks, and the myth of Jews running government. And each of those false narratives is incredibly destructive and dangerous. Um, the idea that Jews control the media, these are these are very old ideas, um, is a very, you know, is a dangerous lie because it essentially is saying that Jews are controlling public messaging, that Jews control the way that people think in a society. The idea that Jews control the banks, which we hear in like Soros and Rothschild run the economy kind of conspiracy theories are also dangerous lies because what it essentially is arguing is that there's some nefarious group that's controlling all of the levers of our financial systems that are reaping the benefits of these systems you know, while the good, hardworking people are suffering the consequences. And the idea, of course, that Jews control government is a dangerous lie because it hints that Jews are puppet masters that are secretly controlling the country and controlling the world. And these these are very seductive lies because there are in there is in every society human suffering. And it's really sticky and helpful to have a group that can be blamed for human suffering, a kind of, you know, fifth column that's, that's really striving for world domination. And, and even though we've seen over the course of history, the way that these conspiracy theories and lies have led to incredible bloodshed and human suffering, we, it seems we have to, as a, as a human community, relearn these lessons again and again and again. And, uh, you know, I feel it personally, the danger of, of the re-emergence or the normalization of these, of these threads, these lies. But I also, I also know that when anti-Semitism flourishes, democracies are in danger. And that's, that's something that I think is very significant and important for people to hear that anti-Semitism threatens democracies um, and strengthens authoritarianism, authoritarian regimes, breaks apart coalitions that are fighting for justice. This is the way historically anti-Semitism has manifested. So it's a very sticky idea. It's one that hasn't disappeared even over the course of generations and in fact seems to be gaining fuel um, over the course of time. And unfortunately is... In you know is in a moment of ascendancy again for the last seven or eight years, and then especially over the course of the last two months. So I appreciate that, and I think I understood that before my question, and it doesn't help me understand it at all. And and here's what I mean. So if it was just this oppressor oppress e thing, maybe. 
But I'll give you, for instance, Mm -hmm. so I've spent my entire career in the tech world, and there have been some groups that have done incredibly well in the technology world. So, for example, uh, Indian entrepreneurs and technologists have come from India and contributed massively here to the tech startup world. We now have Indian leaders running Microsoft, running Google, um, incredible high-profile billionaire entrepreneurs, uh, um, uh, venture capitalists, Indians as a group. You know, they talk about the quote-unquote Indian mafia in Silicon Valley. And so as a group, they have been incredibly successful, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years. And yet we don't hear any of this hate to a relatively small population who in this example has a high level of concentrated success in one uh, industry. We don't hear any of this. We don't hear any, oh, the Indian evil Indians are up to no good again. And they're, I don't know, whatever the stupid, crazy thing is. Hmm. So we don't hear that towards them. In the tech industry, we also have a very similar thing that's happened um, in, in the Asian, broad Asian community with incredible Chinese engineers and Japanese engineers and development centers in, in, in Singapore and so forth. Anybody in the tech world uh, has done extensive business throughout many uh, of Asian countries. South Korea is incredible right now, leading in EVs. And obviously Samsung is there, Taiwan. I mean, I could go on and on and on about various pockets of Asian countries. And again, they've come here to Silicon Valley and they've had tremendous success. And we don't, even with how much China is disliked in the United States, we don't hear, oh, those evil Chinese are taking over Silicon Valley or those evil Taiwanese or whatever, whatever, whatever. And so, it's it's not, it's more than just oh Jews as a group seem to be more successful than most groups or the group that I think I'm part of and so I'm then going to be angry at the Jews because you know you're running the banks and I'm not or whatever crazy uh, trope they're subscribing to and so I just wonder what what is it about Jews that draws this for being successful. The thing in America, I believe, we should celebrate the most people who are able to come from nothing and create something legendary. I have a huge place in my heart for entrepreneurs and creators of all kinds who create net new value from nothing. And historically, listen, whether it's in the creative arts or whether it's in entrepreneurship or science or many other areas, Jewish people have done really well. And so I I guess I'm confused about why this gets targeted in our modern era mm-hmm. to Jewish people in a way that it doesn't to say certain types of Asian people or Indian people, like I just described. My first response to that is that Asians are targeted for hate in America. And, you know, I think we saw over the last several years, especially since COVID really a rash of anti-Asian hate crimes and like real acts of violence against, um, against, uh, against Asians in America, but I know that you're saying that even still, I understand it's that that's a different numbers, thing, right? right? It's a, it's a I hate yeah. you because you made co- you you brought COVID to me, insane, but it, there right. it is. As opposed to oh, uh, Jews are all bad; they run the world, and they always have, and all these right. other insane things, right? Yeah, I mean, I will I will just say that 
this is the way that scapegoating works. I mean, scapegoating appears first in the in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Leviticus, the whole there's a there's a really intoxicating idea that that there can be a body, either a body of an animal or a body of a human or a body of a human, you know, community, a family, a tight-knit ethnic group. There are only 15 million of us in the world, right? There are billions of Christians, billions of Muslims. There are 15 million Jews, a, a, a small tight-knit group of people that can actually hold, bear on their shoulders, the sins of the people. That's the, that's the whole nature of the scapegoat ritual in the book of Leviticus, that on this, you know, on this day that the whole community would come out and they would put their hands, the priest would put his hands on a goat, transfer all of the sins of the people and then send the goat off to Azazel, which is, you know, either off a cliff or off into the rocky wilderness. And we never have to deal with our sins again. There's something intoxicating about that idea. Imagine if I don't have to deal with the, you know, with my own responsibility, my own accountability with building the, the the society that I dream of, but instead I can just point fingers and point blame towards someone else. And the persistence of this hatred over the course of thousands of years only makes it more delectable. There's There might be something there. The Jews are the people who were accused of killing God. I mean, that's a very powerful, that's a conspiracy theory that's very hard to break. And I think burrows deep into the system. So, I, you know, there's something that, there, there's, there's, it's tapping into a very ancient hatred. They say that you know, anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred, but I think misogyny is older. I was just about to say, I got <laughs> one for you. <laughs> yeah, I know, but, but, but it's certainly one of the world's oldest hatreds, and you know, it is perplexing. I we took a community trip to Eastern Europe last summer, Central and Eastern Europe, and. Um, you know, we went to visit communities that used to where Jews were 40% of the population. And now there's not a single survivor that made it back after, after the Holocaust. And, you know, we, we walked through Auschwitz and Birkenau and we were all asking the same question, the children and the parents and the grandparents, like, why is, why is this particular lie such an intoxicating lie that generation after generation all over the world, people have attached themselves to this lie as a way of, in some way, it's a kind of bomb to the heart. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to feel bad about what's happening here because I, I can point my finger to the people who are ultimately responsible for it. And that has not, it's not part of the natural universe that it keeps emerging. This is a really critical idea that I want to communicate Antisemitism is not part of the natural world. It's part of a machinery of hatred that is used and fueled by people who profit from, from societies that are riven with antisemitism. So who profits when we're able to point the finger at one particular group of people and say that they're responsible for the evils of the world? Who profits from that? We have to be asking that question. And if we're so consumed with, with you know, with, with like the targeting of the Jews, that we don't ask the question about why are the Jews being targeted? Who are we not looking at when we're looking at the Jews? Um, I think we're missing the point. And it's, this is what makes Jews very vulnerable in our society. But it, again, this is also what makes our democracy very vulnerable because we're all getting distracted right now. And I, I think that what's critical to our, to our country healing and to our society healing is ultimately 
really looking honestly at where are the inequities and where is the injustice in our society and what do we have to do to build a just and equitable and loving society. And that cannot happen on, on the backs of the Jews because the Jews control the government and the media and the banks and the weather and the space lasers and all the other things. We have to be really clear-headed in looking at what is broken in American society right now. And instead of quickly moving to place blame on one small group that historically throughout, you know, across time and space, many people, many societies have pointed to, instead ask the real questions of what's actually going on behind this story. And what do we need to do as a society collectively to build a different kind of future? And Jews have to be part of that conversation, not sidelined and marginalized and scapegoated as the cause of all of the pain. Amen, hallelujah, sister. <laughs> or amen, as the case may be, or, or any other <laughs> way you want to say it. Now, I, I listened to a recent podcast of yours that um, stopped me in my tracks, and you were talking about uh, what we just mentioned briefly, which is women. Mm. And um, what happened on October 7th? How much of that was not believed? Uh, this morning I noticed uh, hashtag uh, me too, unless you're a Jew, right? It's now been multiple days since then and Jewish women coming out saying, hey, all of you feminists, all of you me tooers, you don't believe us about what just happened? You think we're lying? about all of this horrible uh, atrocities that were committed against Israeli women. And so could you kind of unpack maybe some of your thoughts about um, women in this regard? Yeah, I the sermon that I gave now about a week and a half ago um, started with the story devastating story, which is now being widely reported um, in the New York Times and elsewhere about the female spotters whose job it is in the Israel Defense Forces to keep eyes on the Gaza border and to notify the officers if they see anything suspicious or unusual. And these spotters, they're they're all women, um, and they saw a lot of cause for concern over the course of the past year. And they reported what they saw, including open air training for what appeared to be a massive scale attack with multiple breaches of the border. And that would that would attack not only military installations near the border in Israel, but that would attack civilians living in the kibbutzim, in the communities, um, in the, what's called the Gaza Envelope. And they reported what they had seen exactly as they were supposed to. And they were ignored, dismissed, demeaned, mocked for what they shared. We know now of one very senior intelligence official in Shmona Mataim 8200, which is like the vaunted intelligence establishment, who was a woman who reported what she had been seeing since July and she said, this is going to be a massive attack with massive fatalities and abductions. And um, she was told that it seemed imaginary. And, and this is truly devastating because obviously, in many ways, the, the raison d'etre of the state of Israel is that 
there ought to be a place after a history of persecution and, and, and suffering and genocide of Jews where Jews can be safe. And the fact that that the state wasn't able to protect the people at the border on October 7th is absolutely devastating. And there will be a massive reckoning in the days ahead for that failure. And Israel will really have to reassert itself to its people um, as a body that's able to protect the people. That's a big conversation that's going on internally right now among Israelis. But I was struck by the by the gendered nature of this conversation, and many of the, the a couple of the spotters survived. Most of them were murdered on October seventh. The very people who had issued the warning, but a couple of them survived, and they said, "We have no doubt that had we been men sitting and looking at those screens and issued the warnings, that we would have been believed, and w- this whole thing could have been prevented." And um, it's hard to hear that and not also draw the connection to the other, you know, horrific experience of Israeli women um, on October 7th that is also not being believed, not by Israeli intelligence and military apparatus, but by the human rights organizations that are actually dedicated to protecting women from sexual and gender-based violence. This is a story that will continue to unfold in the days ahead. Um, I mean, we what we know now from eyewitness evidence, from survivor testimony, and from other evidence, uh, we know that there that there were many instances of, of rape and sexual violence against children, against women, against elders, and the fact that the fact that that cannot be easily and clearly condemned by every person who claims to care about human dignity and about human rights it's is re- really is a is a major perhaps mortal wound on the collective conscience it's almost astonishing it's the thing about all this that baffles my mind is the leaders of Hamas steal anywhere between 40 to 60% of the aid, depending on whose data you want to believe, live in Qatar and drive Bugattis. That's the other thing that boggles my mind. Not only is the world not listening to Israeli women about this, but there's no condemnation of Hamas leadership at all. None in the media, none in our government. The president of the United States has not gone on TV and said, hey, listen, you captured a bunch of our people. We want them back. And if not, we're coming to get them right now. The president of the United States never said that. It, it just. And then these people who who want to be supportive of Palestinians, which I understand. Innocent Palestinian lives are, are, are horrible to see lost and to see children. And no, not a, there's not a human being in the world that wants that. Well, if you don't want that, in my opinion, why aren't you screaming for the end of Hamas? Instead, people are angry at Israel. I, it boggles my mind. Well, I think part of what's going to have to happen in the days ahead is that the messianists, in the Palestinian community and the messianists in the Israeli Jewish community need to be radically disempowered 
I don't think you'll eliminate messianic threads in either of these communities, but need to be truly disempowered so that so that the people of these of, of these lands who want to live in peace, who want to live as neighbors, who want to see one another in dignity can do so. I just I want to lift up a Professor Amani Jamal, who's a professor from Princeton, who um, who completed she did a survey of um, surveying Palestinian attitudes toward Hamas and toward Israel that that she concluded in September of 2023, just a few days before the attacks on October 7th. And what she found was that um, was that 75 percent of Gazans did not support Hamas and actually were open to the idea of a two state solution. Now, that number has shifted in the days since, in the two months since. And I think in wartime, we can't trust studies. I mean, I don't think that this, I think this is a snapshot of where people are right now. I think that um, many people, it appears, feel that Hamas broke the status quo. They brought the world's attention to the plight of the Palestinians and they got some of their prisoners home. And so that's a win. Um, My hope is that once this fighting, uh, once this fighting ends, which God willing will be soon, that things will return to a place where the majority of both populations yearn for and are willing to fight for for a for a kind of peace that we haven't even heard discussed in a couple of decades and you know here i just want to lift up that i've heard more people talk about a two state solution in the last 2 months than i have in the last 8 years and that is a sign for hope, I believe, that this idea, it was, many people said the two-state solution is dead, that we passed the 11th hour, it's over, it's never going to happen. And yet I have seen, I've seen and heard more people who are, you know, really experts in the region now say, this is now possible again, um, that as one of my, as one of my, my teachers, Danielle Hartman said, you know, often in hist- in in the course of Jewish history, it's taken great tragedy to shake us out of a substandard mediocre or mediocre status quo. And I don't think that I I I, I just want to be clear eyed about this. I mean, this is going to be in- incredible anguish for a long time to come, and it may also be that in the aftermath of this war that there's the beginning of a different kind of conversation that is driven by the fierce urgency of now in finding a way to live as neighbors with one another and not being in endless war with each other because everybody is suffering in this status quo. And so we have to do better than we're doing right now. And I believe that it is possible for us to, because I believe, as I said earlier, that at the end of the day, most people just want to get home safely and put their kids to bed with a full belly, dreaming big ideas about whatever they just studied in school that day. And it's those people who are going to have to be the drivers of this next chapter, the drivers of this movement. I personally hope there'll be a lot of women in leadership in that uh, in, in that next chapter, because I think we have to shake up a lot of the assumptions that have been driving the discourse up to this moment. So maybe we could touch on that. I, I, I sort of felt it uh, in your podcast. It depends on how you define war, but if you ask ChatGPT and Bard and 
how many wars have been started by women, you get different uh, responses. But basically, somewhere between none and very few is the is the answer I can I can essentially find out. It, you know, like Bill Clinton said, it depends on what your definition of is is. Uh, but <laughs> best we could tell here, it's men. You know, two hundred and fifty million to women, one or two at best. <laughs> and so I just kind of look at it and go, huh. <laughs> You'll have to excuse this expression, <laughs> Rabbi, but uh, more chicks, less dicks. I, I mean, listen, we just had Angela Merkel end her run in um, in Germany after multiple victories. And uh, she was considered by many to be the quote unquote real leader of the Western world, of the free world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was considered by many to be uh, the most powerful, the most thoughtful, the most influential uh, Western democracy leader. Um, and of course, she's retired now. But I don't know. She did a pretty great job. I don't know. We could, I, I could have Angela Merkel here in the United States. Well, look, I mean, the the fact is that women, uh, you know, I can I can think right now of of many women in Congress who I would not want to be uh, in our own country in positions of of leadership. And it's not. Why are they even allowed in our country, Rabbi? (laughs) But but I do. But I um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, but I will I will just say I don't want to be so binary about this. I don't think that women necessarily equals peace, but I do believe um, and I say this really as as a mother. Um, I do believe that um, that for for women, war will not be would not be the 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 first and and last answer to any question. And um, you know, I, there's that famous expression that when all you have is a hammer, you see the whole world as a nail. And um, I, I just I think that we need to enter into an era of a different kind of creative and generative thinking that really centers human life, that really honors human dignity. And I think, you know, that for so many years, women have been marginalized, invisibilized um, sidelines that having women at the helm of that would be would be only helpful and to for the greater good of humanity. Um, so I, you know, I lifted up in, in the sermon that you're referencing, um, one particularly extraordinary woman named Vivian Silver, who was the dearest friend of one of my dearest friends, Schiffer Bronznick. And Vivian was a lifelong peace activist, a Canadian who, um, who made Aliyah, moved to Israel. And she lived in, um, Kibbutz Be'eri at the border. And we thought for about five or six weeks that she had been abducted by Hamas on October 7th and then found out um, that she had actually been murdered uh, on October 7th. They were able to identify her remains. Um, And Vivian, I mention her because she was one of the founders of an organization called Women Wage Peace. And this is an organization of Israeli Jews, um, of Palestinian citizens of Israel, of Bedouin, of Druze. Um, of of people in the region, women in the region who really believe that there's another way. And I, you know, I met on a, a trip years ago to Liberia. I met with the women who made peace in Liberia with Lamak Bohi and um and really thousands of women who gathered together in the fish market every single morning at 5 a.m. and basically stood in between the government militia 
and, you know, and uh, the government forces and the militia um, and said, like, our bodies and our children are the greatest victims of these of this war. You must stop. And it just strikes me that it will require that kind of generative, creative, forceful leadership in order uh, ultimately for this conflict to ultimately be resolved and for us to begin to enter a different kind of, of chapter, one of peacemaking, of reconciliation, of reparation, of, you know, really rehumanization. And how do you see that happening, Rabbi, in a uh, culture that is um, run by jihadists that believes they can kill women at will, where women women are clearly second-class citizens, they can't have bank accounts if their fathers or husbands don't approve, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this if we if, if part of this is peace through women, which I believe in, I, I, look, I'm. I'm an, it's a very simple person. Women make people, and the people who make people are different than the people who don't make people. And the people who make people care about people in the way that the people who don't make people care about people. It's just very obvious. However, if I'm a woman in Palestine today, I mean, don't I have to live a pretty careful life? Don't I risk... Uh, my life and the life of my family if I begin to take a leadership role on any of this? It's it's not only in Palestine or in Arab lands or in Muslim countries where women are not taking leadership oh, no, roles. I understand, I understand. And so I think in all of our cultures, we are drenched in patriarchy and misogyny. And, you know, this is this is just the reality of the world that we're living in right now, but it's not the world we have to live in. And so I, again, I will say that I don't, I do not believe that most Palestinians are jihadis, just as I know that most Jews are not messianic Jewish religious extremists. Both of those populations exist. Both of them are extremely dangerous to any kind of future. Um, and that's why I think moderate voices need to need to speak out courageously and need to be supported. Um, but I will not I will not buy the argument that, you know, that there is this um, that, that, that the overwhelming majority of the population is jihadi and wants the destruction of uh, of every Jewish person. I don't believe that that's true. In fact, I believe that many of the protesters here in the United States and around the world who are now supporting Hamas are supporting a very radical agenda that does not actually reflect the will of the majority of the people who live in the, in, in the region. So I, I'm going to continue to, to try to cast my lot with those people who will see my humanity just as I will see theirs while remaining vigilant to the greater threat um, that absolutely exists, but I don't believe has to be definitional in our time or in the future. And, you know, I, I will continue to remain curious and to seek out voices of moderation um, and to seek out voices that have been marginalized under patriarchal structures. And my hope is that collectively we can engage in a different kind of public discourse than 
than the current one or the one that's been dominant over the last many decades. From your mouth to God's ears, Rabbi. Is there anything else you'd like to share? No, this has been really enlightening and I'm grateful for the conversation. I am too. And I'm curious why you say enlightening. It's, I'm always, I always learn from everybody who I speak with. And especially when our positions seem, when we see things from a slightly different or radically different vantage point, it broadens my own thinking to, to try to understand what, what you're seeing and why, and what, when things look so, so obvious and clear to me. And then I talk to someone else who I respect, who sees it differently. It it helps, it helps expand. So what, what do you think that I see differently than you that maybe you didn't agree with? I'm curious. Newsome, for example. Oh, you're a fan. (laughs) Well, (laughs) just as a, I mean, I don't know that we have time to get into this right now. Maybe we'll cut this part. But, um, you know, they're, they're always like, even, even the way that we phrase things differently is, is really interesting. And, and, you know, I think the whole, this, this, this conflict and its aftermath, um, well, it's not its aftermath, October 7th and its aftermath. And this conflict that has now inflamed the world, um, you know, is a Rorschach test and everybody's looking at this and seeing things in a very different way. So I always find it helpful to see the world through others' eyes. So thank you. As do I, and I do my best to do it. And it's it's one of the toughest things I think uh, we as humans have is to try to see even a little bit from inside somebody else's uh, perspective. Well, I so appreciate that. And I mean, that's just sort of going back to the main thesis of this conversation. I think that especially living in a time of curiosity deficit, we have to find our way into questioning, into curiosity, into wonder for one another's perspectives. And so I'm grateful for the chance to do that here. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you so much for your radical humanity. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so, so sorry. God bless you, Rabbi. Well, there she is, the legendary Rabbi Sharon Browse. Her new book is available for pre-order now, and it makes a wonderful gift for yourself and for anybody in your life that you care about. It's called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And you can pick up your copy of The Amen Effect everywhere you get legendary books. You can also find Rabbi Sharon at ikar.org. That's ikar.org, I-K-A-R. Dot O-R-G. And thinking, uh, thinking about gifts, don't forget that podcasts make legendary gifts. They excite and delight the uh, receiver, and uh, um, they're easy to give. There's a share button on your uh, podcast player right now, and it's free. So why not share this episode with somebody that you care about right now? All right, we would like to thank, of course, you. We deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with us here All of us uh, at uh, Follow Your Different really deeply appreciate your time. Our friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant who's a very real person, powered by technology, but who's not near you and never will get anywhere near you, go to Bottleneck.online today. Our friends at Otranet have been building preeminent B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. If it's time for you to uh, revamp and relaunch your website, they have a rapid relaunch program. Check out atre.net today. That's atre.net. And 
Category design is the greatest superpower in business because category designers create the markets and uh, market categories of the future. Category Pirate's new Category Design Academy is now open, and right now, people are learning to create different futures, become radically differentiated, and design and dominate new markets. So check out CategoryPirates.com for the new Category Design Academy. Uh, the new Category Design Academy. <laughs> it's the first place you can learn business stuff uh, that's created for and by pirates. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All episodes do contain nuts. Uh, all rights remain perturbed. Uh, please consult your doctor, lawyer, shaman, mystic, rabbi, and a spiritual advisor, and of course, category designer, before doing anything you heard on today's episode. Uh, warning, driving in the left-hand lane, the passing lane, might cause um, a genital disease, and you could receive a $238 fine. So please, for the love of God, don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember, everything is the way that it is because somebody legendary, just like you, changed the way that it was. We are produced and edited by my dear friend, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our uh, technical execution, and they uh, build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobas Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development. And Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts over the internet on Squadcast.fm. Joan Jett was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. Please be kind and rewind. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.